Yeah, and Dr. Colburn, by the way, was a fantastic guest host, which made me entirely uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like that he was cracking jokes. I don't like how capable <laughs> you seem without me and Stuart. Right. Like this, uh, I don't. This well, is a, it, I feel like it's, a slippery slope we're on here. Is, it's, I wasn't going to do this on air, but you guys are both fired. <laughs> it's uh, okay. All right, we're, we're going to go st- start the. Uh, was it Schmerbsiders? <laughs> Schmerbsiders. The, the Schmerbsiders. Yeah. Schmerbsiders. I I promise not to take you to court over that. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Stuart. Uh, Hi. Very formal tonight. He, <laughs> that he, made me real uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it made me a little uncomfortable, too. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. I am Dr. Stuart Brigham. <laughs> and Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, guys. How are you? Hi, Paul. I, I'm doing well, Paul. I actually wanted to start off the show. We've probably we not done enough of this, but I did want to read a nice email that we got from a listener, Shelby. Shelby says, hello, I am writing the team to thank Aww. each of you for the amazing podcast thank you, you, present, you present. Yeah. I commute, to, I commute to work, two hour round trip, and recently lost my carpool cool. partner. Two hour round trip. It's it's a long one. We've got a problem here already. So she goes on and she says, anyways, the point, she goes on for a while. She says, anyways, the point of this, all this jabber, the podcasts are great to listen to on my drive. They are interesting and comical, so I'm not snoozing like many would imagine listening to Wonderful. medical updates and news. I also want to let you know that your target audience is not just physicians, but pharmacists as well. Keep up the excellent podcast, and I look forward to hearing more. Thank you. And this mm. is Shelby from... Kansas. You know, what I got out of that is that she shouldn't move anywhere closer to work because then our podcast would be too long. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. She, well, she she could she could sp- split it between the morning and the afternoon That's, that's true, but at least this way she can listen to us twice a day. Yeah, I like that better. Me too. Or maybe the or same episode. Just try. Thank you, Shelby. That's very nice of you. We appreciate <laughs> the feedback. Sorry that we're micromanaging your life. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> okay. If you need any parking tips, please, by all means, let us know. Um, Paul, as always, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this quest of yours. How are we doing there, or how are you doing? I'm I'm not part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, spiritually, I feel like you are. No, I, I'm trying to catch up. It's it's slow going, but I um, I'm going to recommend one out the gate, even without you asking me. And I'm not breaking any new ground here, but I finally sat aside three and a half hours of my life and watched Lawrence of Arabia. Ooh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the the 1962 epic. Um, that everyone's heard of, but almost no one's actually sat down and watched. There's and a reason is, for that. <laughs> it is as easily in my top five. It is one of the best movies I've ever seen. There are pieces of cinematography that literally sort of made me catch my breath. So if you if you consider yourself a big film fan, like it's one that you should watch just to say that you watched it, but also because it is just a beautiful movie that is sort of breathtaking in scope and um, and the score, of course, is is justifiably acclaimed. So if you're even a minor fan of movies, you should watch it. Yeah, I, I I can't say I know anything about Lawrence of Arabia. I've heard of it though. Yeah, I only and watch I, movies when I'm like stuck on a plane. I'm forced to watch one. <laughs> if a movie looks like it's more than like 20 years old at this, or I guess 30 years old, if if, it, if it's before my childhood, I'm just like, nah, I don't think so. Yeah, I'll be weirdly sincere for a moment, but it's you can just see how it's influenced just tons of movies. Like the one that springs right to mind is, is Raiders of the Lost Ark, hmm. which I guess 
was still made before many of our viewers are born at this point. I just depressed what? myself. I, I can't even remember what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> Hold on. I, I, I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, Paul. Me too. I'm, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan. I'm not that, I'm not that no, young. I guess it was before Matt was born. Okay. We probably should just uh, introduce the episode. I feel like we've gone off on a, on a tangent here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure, why not? The point, the point of this episode, it's, it's, it's titled The Pseudo-Endocrine Patient, and our guest was Dr. Michael T. McDermott. He is a professor of medicine at the University. T stands for thyroid, right? I think so. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that interruption. Uh, Professor of medicine at the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine and the director of the endocrinology and diabetes practice at University of Colorado Hospital. He spent 20 years in the U.S. Army where he served as the chief of the endocrinology service and also the director of the endocrinology fellowship program at Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center Hmm. and also was the endocrinology consultant to the Surgeon General. His clinical research interests include the treatment of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, the treatment of osteoporosis and related metabolic bone diseases, and the pathophysiology of disorders of the thyroid gland. He is also the author of the book, Endocrine Secrets, which we will talk a little bit about. It's now in its sixth edition. And we asked him on the show to kind of teach us what is a pseudoendocrine patient how can we help these people and maybe avoid an endocrinology consult? Excellent. Yes. I, I found it helpful, and I hope you will, too. That's right. And Shelby, don't fall asleep. I hear it's a zinger. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host for the day, Dr. Jeffrey Colburn. And groupie here following. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much. We're, we're here at ACE again. And today we have with us, we're so excited to have Dr. Michael McDermott from the University of Colorado, Denver School of Medicine. And he is also the author of the very popular book, Endocrine Secrets, which is right now in its sixth edition with the seventh edition in the works. And we have him on the show today to talk about the pseudo-endocrine patient. And we will have him tell us exactly what that is. But as you know, we always like to start asking our guests a little bit about themselves and Dr. McDermott, I, I kind of prepped you in the pre-interview. I wanted to know, uh, what is your one-liner, kind of giving the audience a flavor about yourself? Well, I'm uh, an endocrinologist. I've been an endocrinologist for 40 years. I'm married. I have four children, three, four grandchildren now. And um, I uh, am an avid outdoor person. I like to fish and golf and bike and ski. So Colorado is a great Colorado's place a great for you place to be. To live. Yeah, I, I imagine that's why you've been there for twenty years. That sounds that sounds awesome. It probably kept the kids busy too, right? Yeah, sure did. <laughs> I also have four kids. Jeff Jeff has two, and uh, keeping the kids busy is a big big part of my life. Big mission in life every day. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about. As as a, when you were coming up as a learner and and when you were cutting your teeth as an educator, what are some what is some good advice that you got that that you can pass on to our audience? There's a lot of advice I think I got over the years, and so to say what's the best is difficult. But I'd say if we go to the top of the list, it's really listening to patients as they describe to you why they're there and and what their symptoms and concerns are. Uh, and being interested in that and, and pursuing it, uh, not trying to make up my mind too quickly about what the main issues in their life are. I think that's going to be very applicable to what we're going to talk about today. 
to the the pseudo endocrine patient, and uh, I I came I went to your talk yesterday. I was very intrigued by the title, not knowing exactly how to define that. Can you can you give us the definition of the pseudo endocrine patient and, and a little bit about what what your talk was about? So it, it's a new term. It, you know, I was asked to give this talk, and I think the people who asked me to do that made the term up, and and so I'm really giving you a definition sort of on the fly. But I think we all who see patients would, would recognize that we, we have patients uh, that would fit this uh, description, that they either have symptoms that, that could be due to endocrine disorders, um, nonspecific symptoms that could be endocrine-related or other things, and they've had some degree of endocrine testing and their tests are normal, but they still have their symptoms and they come to you and you're left with how do I evaluate and help this person who does have symptoms that could be endocrine-related, but their their tests are normal? There may also, however, this could also apply to people who have an, an endocrine disorder, uh, a thyroid disorder that's already being treated, but they still don't feel like they're back to normal. And even though you're giving what is the standard of care, um, are you doing enough? Um, so that would be another another type of pseudoendocrine disorder is that there are some there is some misinformation that people get from the internet or from some alternative providers who um, might diagnose them with some conditions that sound plausible but have been proposed without any proof that they ever exist and so people have been labeled as having one of these conditions and and we really don't have any validation that there really is such a condition, but people believe they have that because someone has told them or the internet has told them they have that and, and they would like to seek treatment for it. Well, I, I want to get into the the case you gave yesterday was, it, it's it's kind of the painful appointment that you get. Uh, it was a 30-something 30 some, 30 female. She was maybe eight months or so postpartum. She had ordered her tests, her own endocrine tests off the internet based on she I think you told, said she had read on the internet and she thought these tests might be useful for her and she was checking her growth hormone or IGF-1 or thyroid reverse T3 and all the tests were for the most part normal some things were just like lower limited normal or slightly abnormal so she she was a young woman and to um, repeat her symptoms she had chronic fatigue that had been going on for about 10 years and was progressive and she was having difficulty losing weight. She wasn't overweight, but she was heavier than she had been in high school and, and still wasn't in the overweight category, BMI of about 24.5, but wanted to lose weight and was unable to do that. Um, so I, I would say to, to those would be the two main complaints would be the um, just fatigue and difficulty losing weight and, and frustration about that. Um, and so... As a young woman, she really didn't have significant other history. I did ask about all other medical conditions and surgical conditions. She didn't have any of those. She took a multivitamin, but she didn't take a lot of supplements in it. She took one multivitamin. Physical exam, completely normal. All of us in endocrinology know that you can feel a thyroid gland, and if, if the person has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, for example, which is the most common cause of hypothyroidism, it, it feels a, a certain way, and, and most of us who have been feeling thyroid glands for a long time can tell when a person has that condition, regardless of their tests. 
Um, but she had a normal thyroid exam. She had a normal general exam. At that point, I would um, have recommended some tests. However, she had gone online, and, and a lot of people are not aware of this, and I don't recommend it, but she had gone online and found one of the on-site uh online sites where you can order your own lab tests. I mean, as a disclaimer, people have to know insurance doesn't cover this, and these tests cost a lot of money. And interpreting tests really isn't a matter of just looking at the number and is it in the normal range. You have to interpret every test in the context of the patient and what their symptoms are. And every hormone in relationship to every other hormone is important. So she came in with her list of ab- of tests and had highlighted in yellow the test results that were at the lower end or upper end of the normal range, so not frankly abnormal, or were frankly a little bit low or a little bit high. And this is really common. I mean, she has been suffering with her symptoms for 10 years, and she is looking for something, and she didn't find anything overt. So it, it, it I think it's perfectly logical for her to say, so do these abnormalities... Right. mean anything. So I think she had a perfectly logical approach and that has to be respected. And yeah, that I I get that sort of thing all the time. Somehow the patient saw their labs before they got to the office with me and they said, oh, it said my MCHC is low or something like that on the CBC that I, I don't even remember what that means for the most part um, that, that I don't think is relevant to their care. So this lady had a, a reverse T3 that was abnormal. And can you talk about the reverse T3 syndrome, what's out there on the Internet, and how we can dispel that? Okay, so the reverse T3 is not really um, a, a test that, that endocrinologists order except in people who are hospitalized and may have what we call euthyroid sick syndrome or non-thyroid illness. When people get very, very ill with a hospitalized illness usually, their their body decreases conversion of T4 to T3. Their T3 levels drop, and instead of T3 being made, they make reverse T3. So it can help you in the hospital sometimes distinguish somebody who has a real thyroid problem from just the thyroid function abnormalities that occur from being sick. So I, I don't want to say there's never a reason to order reverse T3, but in an outpatient setting, it really doesn't have value. On the Internet, however, you, you'll, you'll find multiple sites that talk about a reverse T3 syndrome, which is a hypothetical condition hypothesized by someone who says, you know, if your reverse T3 level is high for whatever reason, that will compete with T3. T3 is the active thyroid hormone that binds to thyroid hormone receptors and causes thyroid hormone action. And if your reverse T3 is high, it competes with T3, and therefore you don't get T3 into your tissues and you feel hypothyroid even though your tests are normal. A nice hypothesis, I mean, I, I believe that we all ought to be thinking outside the box and but if we have a hypothesis before we pr- tell people it's a real disease, we should test it and validate it. And that's the weakness here is that's never been validated as a disease. So there, in my opinion, and opinion of the American Thyroid Association, the Endocrine Society, and ACE, is that there there is no reverse T3 and, syndrome. And you even presented a slide that said that T3 has 100 times the affinity for the thyroid receptor as the reverse T3, so it it would it shouldn't be outcompeted by reverse T3 That's right. anyway. The, mi- the mild to moderate increases in reverse T3 
um, couldn't compete with with native T3, which, as you just pointed out, has a 100-fold higher affinity right. for the thyroid receptor than reverse T3. So that not only validate, means that the, the, the condition isn't validated, but there's, there's good scientific evidence to refute that it does exist. It's interesting how complex it is. Like going back to your example of the admitted inpatient, the, the rare instance when somebody might order that reverse T3, you know, giving active T3 cytomel products to those euthyroid sick syndrome patients uh, actually increases their mortality. Yes. And yeah. so it's interesting. It's This may be a marker, not necessarily a cause of disease. It's just a very complex. So just going back to your point of you can't just look at a lab in isolation, point it at being low, attribute their illness to that finding. And it's very complex. Exactly right. And I'm glad you pointed that out because very sick people, as you said, who are given thyroid hormone because their thyroid hormone levels are off due to their illness um, actually do more poorly. They have, a, they have worse outcomes if you give them thyroid hormones. So clearly that's an adaptive response. I'm glad you pointed that out. Now for this young lady to go back to the case, we've normal thyroid exam. The, we're not worried about the, she had, a, I think, a normal TSH and free T4, her reverse T3. I think I misspoke. It was, was it slightly high, but it we're not worried about that? It was the upper end of the normal range. So it was just like one-tenth okay. below the upper end yeah. of normal. And, and for the reasons we've stated, that's, you know, we, that, that is not of concern and, and shouldn't have been ordered in an outpatient anyway. So we've kind of put thyroid off the table. One other thyroid test. She had a free T3 that was the low end of normal. And what a lot of people don't understand is even though we would like to know what free hormone levels are because thyroid hormone is bound by protein, you have to understand the accuracy of assays before you put a lot of stock in them. And free T3 is a very difficult assay, and there's a lot of questions about how accurate it is. So we don't actually recommend measuring free T3. When you want to assess somebody's T3 status, we still recommend a total T3, even though it doesn't tell us what the free level is, but the free assay is not highly accurate at this point. We hope someday it will be. And having said that, her free T3 wasn't, frankly, low. It was in the normal range. It was just at the lower end of the normal range. So, And I think that's an interesting aspect of endocrine tests in that, like, for example, a internist that orders a hematocrit, the hematocrit's not dynamic. It stays pretty stable unless the patient's bleeding, um, whereas hormones fluctuate on certain patterns. And then also, like you'd mentioned with the free hormone, it's a very, it's like 1%, I think, of the hormone content. It's less than 1%. Yeah. So it's, you know, measuring this like picomolar, like tiny amount is very challenging and difficult. And I think patients see labs as it's either in the range or not. And I think the, the complexity of lab testing really, I think, uh, warrants having someone with th that expert mind to look at it. It's one of the core features of endocrinology is to interpret every lab test in the context of the entire patient, you know, how they feel, and in the context of what their other labs look like. Uh, a low, normal T3 in the presence of a high TSH is different than a normal TSH, estradiol, all of those, you know, th there's, there's a picture that's being painted that you have to look at as a whole. And... And moving moving on to the the other gland, so so we we kind of said, all right, we're pretty sure this lady thyroid's normal. 
you also talked about pituitary and adrenal. So how, how did you reassure yourself that there was no pituitary problem or adrenal problem? You can, you can pick whichever you want to go to next. So she had a normal cortisol and a normal ACTH. Adrenal insufficiency, when it's chronic, um, can cause fatigue, although it typically is associated with weight loss, not, not weight gain. And when people are acutely ill with the flu, they typically will get very sick because they don't have the ability to make cortisol in stress amounts. Cortisol is a stress hormone, so it typically doesn't present with 10 years of just progressive fatigue. And when it does, most of those people are darkly tanned and they've lost a lot of weight. In this case, she was having trouble losing weight and her skin was normal. So her clinical picture didn't really look like adrenal insufficiency. Certainly didn't look like Cushing syndrome either, which is the opposite, where you make too much cortisol. She had no features of cortisol excess, and that, that's a very distinct look that people have. And so a, a normal cortisol and a normal ACTH, I mean, you could probe that axis more with some additional tests, but I, I don't think there was really any clinical indication. And she was satisfied that those tests were okay. Okay. And then, and then the pituitary which tests reassured you there, and, and what else about the history reassured you? So, so the only test that she did of the pituitary, besides ACTH, which I already discussed, was she measured her growth hormone, and it was low. Growth hormone is actually a pulsatile hormone, which means that we make it in pulses, and in between those pulses, we actually don't make it at all. So a good bit of the day, every single normal person may have a cortisol, excuse me, a growth hormone level that's zero. And then if you happen to sample that, that blood test um, on when they're making a pulse, and that pulse might be made every three hours, you, you, then you might have a growth hormone level that's in the normal range, or it might actually be high. So a growth hormone level um, in, a, in a person uh, is, is not an adequate way to diagnose growth hormone deficiency. And growth hormone deficiency generally in adults occurs only because of a significant pituitary disease. It is a cause of growth failure in children, but this was an adult. Um, but growth hormone goes to the liver, and these pulses of growth hormone cause the liver to make a protein called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. And it's not made in such a pulsatile fashion. It, it sort of reflects the total daily exposure to growth hormone. So a person with a growth hormone level of zero at any point in time could have a normal IGF-1. Now, we don't recommend testing growth hormone and IGF-1 except in people who have known pituitary disease. It's not a, a, a valid test or even a good test to do in people with chronic fatigue. I, and I would say there might be an exception to that, and that's people with head trauma. And, and in the session I did, and I did the second session later on, at least five people asked, has this person ever had head trauma? Because we know that, that soldiers that have gone to, to war and have been uh, in the vicinity of blast injuries or people who have had head injuries from motor vehicle accidents may have some pituitary damage, and they may have some subtle pituitary defects, and we're just starting to learn that. Um, so... You know, it may be that someone who has a, a chronically progressive case of fatigue, who had significant head trauma, that we will learn someday that there is a better indication for ordering growth hormone studies and a better way to interpret them. 
Growth hormone deficiency, however, in an adult without any known pituitary disease is, is, is extremely rare if we ever see it because if they had true growth hormone deficiency from a genetic cause, they wouldn't have grown normally. Mm-hmm. So acquired growth hormone deficiency in the absence of pituitary disease is very, very rare. And when it occurs, the IGF-1 level is not usually minimally low. It's usually quite low. And because hormone levels vary throughout the day and because hormone assays are not entirely reliable, um, to have a level that's slightly low or slightly high is, is really something that requires clinical judgment when you interpret that. One of the people in the audience had commented that, that even in your own lab, um, because many assays are automated now so they can do them quickly, that the accuracy may be questionable for some labs. And this lady had gotten a lab not at my place, but someone that she mailed off to a lab that I don't even know what kind of quality control they had. So to interpret a level of 57 when normal is 60 or above as being low would be highly questionable. And and certainly without any physical features of pituitary disease, it, it would be unwarranted to say that represented growth hormone deficiency. So once you untangle this patient from Dr. Google a little bit, um, and we have lots of patients that get tangled up by Dr. Google, um, what, what evaluation or what low-hanging fruit are there that probably should have been the initial evaluation of her complaints, um, which now if you've successfully been able to comfort her about the endocrine labs that she's had come back that are mm-hmm. kind of misrepresentative of maybe real problems in the patient, um, per the examples you've just kind of explained away, um, what, what would be the next kind of steps for the assessment for this person? Well, I think when you start focusing on lab tests and endocrine disorders that are probably not there, you're, you're focusing the patient's attention away from what might really be the root cause of what's going on. And if you look at fatigue, for example, which was her main complaint, I think if, if we look at what is the most common complaint in the population of all, what do people complain about when they go to a doctor? The first thing Sleep is, is a big one. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the most common complaint is pain yeah. of some place. And the second is fatigue, and that, that's well known. And then so sleep is, might be a cause of the fatigue, but fatigue is probably the second most common, and it may be the first. And if you go across the board and look at fatigue, the, the most common causes um, are not actually medical conditions. They are usually disorders where people don't get adequate sleep. They don't get adequate exercise. They don't have a well-balanced diet. Uh, they have too much stress in their lives. They have depression or they have another medical illness. So that's six different causes that, that actually are more common than endocrine disorders. Now, endocrine disorders are low-hanging fruit, as you said. I mean, you wouldn't want to miss hypothyroidism. You wouldn't want to miss um, true adrenal insufficiency. You wouldn't want to miss deficiency of vitamin D or B12 deficiency or anemia or kidney disease or liver disease. So a good set of, of fairly inexpensive lab tests can diagnose the, the vast majority of, of medical causes of fatigue, but I think you also have to keep in mind those top six causes of fatigue. Um, and and so you really need to go into sleep, not just do you sleep okay, but do you snore? Does your husband or wife say you snore? Does your husband or wife snore and keep you awake? Do you have a baby that wakes you up all night? 
you know, um, what time do you go to bed? When do you wake up? Sleep hygiene. I mean, ask them good questions. Um, I, I don't think anybody, uh, well, uh, ask them about their exercise habits. Uh, many of us don't have the best dietary habits, and, and I think it's good to go through, you know, what what is good nutrition? You know, the, the fruits, the vegetables, the whole grains. Are you getting enough servings of those per day? Um Stress reduction is a big challenge. If I had the secret on how to reduce stress, I'd I'd probably start my own business because I don't know how to reduce it in myself or anyone else. I do think there are things like sleep, like exercise, you know, meditation, yoga. There's things that you can do to to help yourself relax. And like one of the people in the audience said yesterday, maybe advise the patient to take a vacation. Well, that may not be something that patient really liked to hear the first time, say, go take a vacation. But nonetheless, the advice that maybe you need to give yourself some time out where you relax and just some me time. Um, This lady had a a very significant family um, commitment to two children and a husband who was a full-time worker and a triathlete who trained all weekend, every weekend. So her, her me time was very low. I think, um, and, and I'm smiling because you, one of the audience members said, I like to ask a patient like this the question, when is the last time you had fun? And I just thought that was kind of a novel approach. Like it might light bulb the patients. Like if they can't answer that question, then, you know, that's their stress, their, all that kind of stuff is I'm probably not going right well. I'm having fun right now, man. Yeah. That's very good. I'm having fun. Yes. Yeah. Start a podcast. Yeah. That will, that it's will fun. make it fun for you. Yes. I thought it was a great um, point that that person made. I've never asked somebody that. But, you know, when it comes to a term we call anhedonia, means I never have fun. I mean, that's a a key, you know, symptom of depression. Many men won't admit to uh, depression. Um, And women sometimes are, are more willing to, but not always either. So I think it's one way to get at that. And I, I don't think it's appropriate to, um, you know, suggest to somebody the very first time you see them that, well, I think this is all due to depression. But I think you have to keep that on the table that maybe after we've established a relationship and, you know, we've worked together for a while that we might want to touch on. Do you think that maybe depression isn't the whole thing, but do you think their depression may be playing a role as well? Too much stress, not enough exercise, all of these things I think can play a role. And I, I, I think probably fatigue is multifactorial. And if you just focus on sleep or one, or one of those six things, you're probably not going to fix right. fatigue. And I think like many other conditions that I think are chronic ailments, um, it's a multifactorial symptom that requires a multifactorial approach and patience and time. If you slept well and exercised and ate well for one day, you're not going to relieve your fatigue. It's going it's a long haul. Your your comments here remind so I, I do medical education as you do, as Dr. Colburn does, and I'm just thinking about the poor residents. Uh they all have stress. They're they're all probably not sleeping as much as they want to and they're not getting as much physical activity as they probably did when they were med students or in college. And uh, so, so doctors and uh, other healthcare practitioners struggle with this too. And so, my, I, I you gave six. I, I kind of, I have a similar variant that I go, do for my 
fibromyalgia morning report or my back pain morning report, I say if the patient's not sleeping, if they have mood disorder or stress, I just kind of lump that together. Or if they have, uh, if they're, they're not physically active, then then you're really fighting an uphill battle for any kind of pain or fatigue complaint. I was going to say, no matter what that ultimate cause is, this lady has um, symptoms that are frustrating her and that are reducing the quality of her life. And no matter whether she came in with the diagnosis that, or that you, she has the diagnosis now that she thought she came in with. Um, or whether it's an endocrine disorder or not, and whether I'm an endocrinologist or something else, it doesn't mean I can't help. And I think that, that just human kindness and concern, listening to people, as I, as I brought up to begin with, goes a long way. And I think that there's, there are, there's a lot to, um, the, the interaction between the provider and the patient that has more therapeutic value than a pill or any other prescription that we have. Um, I'm not saying that being kind to someone just relieves every symptom they have. But I think that it, it, it starts the ball rolling. And um, this lady actually may never, you know, in the next few years feel all the way well. But what if she feels a little better? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's a victory. And, and, and we've contributed to that by listening and and trying to track down and admitting that I don't have every test and maybe five years from now I will. And and I'll say, here's what you had and we can fix it now. But if we can't, because we can't fix everything with a pill, we need to try to, you know, go about this the best way possible, which I think lifestyle interventions, just like for treating overweight and obesity, lifestyle interventions, but they have to be done chronically. They have to be done over a long term, not a short term. That, that, that results in frustration. We need to set expectations that you need to do this for a while. Well, I know we're, uh, and Jeff, I see you have a comment here. I know we're taking a lot of your time. The other two conditions that come up on the internet that, that you had mentioned in pre-recording that I think we should just sort of dispel a little bit, adrenal fatigue, and the other one was uh, thyroid or Wilson's T3. It's one that I'm not even, I can't even recall the name because I had never heard of it before. Uh, you just mentioned it. So adrenal fatigue um, is uh, also a disorder that is not validated by any scientific evidence for being for existing. So it, it's a it's a disease, or let me say it's it's a condition that is diagnosed by a test. I mean, the, the disease came about as a result of a test. It's a salivary cortisol profile that people get salivary pledgets that you chew on. You, you turn in a salivary sample every hour all day, and, and the salivary cortisol levels are plotted along a line. And if you fall below a certain line, it's called adrenal fatigue. And, and it's been actually, you know, advertised or, or discussed on by Dr. Oz. It's been refuted by the president of the Endocrine Society, Bob Vigursky, in a very, you know, very... Uh, you know, educated and, and, and well-stated way, uh, there's no validation, there's no evidence at all that adrenal fatigue exists. And my concern with that is more maybe with the other, more than I have with some of the others, because um, if one were to treat that, say, with an adrenal steroid, those are dangerous medications that can in the long run hurt people. 
And I also think it focuses people away from what their real problem is. So there, there are many patients that are being diagnosed by alternative providers with adrenal fatigue. And they do come into their endocrinologist and then say, and I want you to manage this now. And it does frustrate their endocrinologist because there is no such condition as adrenal fatigue. And it's hard to take that diagnosis away from somebody who's been told by somebody else they trust that they do have it. So it, it, it's a difficult situation, and that, that physician-patient relationship of building trust is, is important. The Wilson's low T3 syndrome is the oldest of these. This, this was popularized over 25 years ago. A big website, and, and the theory behind this is that um, for a variety of reasons, stress might be one, um, uh, different nationalities might be one. Scottish heritage, for example, was one for some reason. That people might have a chronic uh, inability to convert T4, the inactive hormone that the thyroid gland makes, to T3, which is the active hormone. Uh, and therefore, uh, that lack of T3 is what was responsible for their fatigue. But the way that is advertised on the Internet is you don't measure any of these hormones. You do a, a, a body temperature with an axillary temperature, and if it's below a certain level, then you have Wilson's low T3 syndrome, which is, is preposterous. And, and there's no validation, first of all, that there is a, such a condition that T4 to T3 conversion is reduced and that causes fatigue, and furthermore, that you can diagnose any thyroid condition with with a body temperature. And the treatment for that is actually quite dangerous. There's accelerating doses of, of T3 or Cytomel uh, to sort of, quote-unquote, reset the um, thyrostat, which is, is quite dangerous. And, and it's been... It's caused some problems with some some serious some serious side effects, but that's still on the internet internet too. So people may be told they have that have Wilson's low T three syndrome, adrenal fatigue, or reverse T three syndrome, um, or they may see that on the internet. I, I don't blame patients at all for seeking help from alternative providers or for going on the internet. They're just trying to take care of themselves. They're trying to get information as well as they can, and I think it's difficult for patients uh, to know what's a, what's a valid site, what's a good medical site, and what is not. And and unfortunately, there's no marker on the Internet that says this one's really not a very good site. You, you kind of take your chances when you go. So I, I would like to find a way to educate patients on what are good Internet sites, where, where can you get good information, and where do you get misinformation. And that misinformation can be misleading, but in some cases it can be harmful. I, I think the Mayo Clinic has some really good patient resources on their website. And uh, I know University of Michigan has some pretty good stuff, especially the GI department there, which we've plugged on some other episodes. I think this is a good time. I wanted to ask you for your take-home points. Before, uh, before you get to those, I just wanted to see. So it sounds like if you get a patient that comes to you with fatigue, it's reasonable to check probably a CBC. You want to check, make sure they don't have anemia. A CMP, which you'll you'll check the liver, you'll check the kidneys with that, and then uh, a thyroid test potentially if if there's reason to suspect it. Um, any other ones you would add? I think vitamin D, vitamin D, twenty five hydroxy vitamin D, vitamin B twelve. Those are reasonable, even if the CBC is normal. I, we could argue that, but I think that's reasonable. And I think that people should be at least questioned about what the possibility of a sleep disorder. I don't think fatigue should automatically trigger a sleep 
test, but at least question people about that. And if there's any suggestion of snoring or poor sleep, people don't have to undergo a full overnight sleep study. They can do an overnight pulse oximetry. Uh, There's plenty of companies that do that. And if your oxygen saturation drops below 90% multiple times, then you probably should have a full sleep study. And, and there's the stop-bang questionnaire that, that's been validated that you can use, uh, which way back on our insomnia episode, uh, Dr. DeGromji had mentioned. So that, that's, that's great. I, we, we, we talked about sleep, but we forgot to mention the sleep study potentially as part of this if the patient suggested. At this point, I'll, I'll ask, and, and of course, the big six that we talked about or, or the big three, whatever you want to call it, those definitely take that good history and ask about those. I wanted to ask you for for your take home points for the audience, and if you have any asks or anything you'd like to plug. I, I think any time a patient comes to me or any of my colleagues, I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is it's a distinct honor that they have entrusted you with their health care, and that has to be taken very seriously. And if they are giving you complaints of symptoms. Um, nobody really wants to have symptoms, so these are things that are frustrating them or decrementing the quality of their life. And so I think we need to take them very seriously and evaluate them to the best of our ability and be attentive and be caring. And if we are unable to diagnose it, to make sure that we convey that, not by saying you don't have anything, but we aren't able to diagnose what is causing your symptoms with our currently available tools. And we may be able to do that someday, but, and maybe everyone wouldn't agree that the next part is, is appropriate. But for me, it would be is that I'm willing to work with you on this and I'd like to see you back for, and see how you're doing on this. And um, I've, I've had validation about that that part from a psychiatrist who's a friend of mine who has shown me evidence, you know, from the psychiatry literature that, that, that many nonspecific complaints will resolve if you're willing just to see the person on, on several occasions and work with them, and mm-hmm. that, whether it's depression or whether it's fatigue or stress. And anecdotally, I can tell you I've, I've seen that in my practice where a really challenging patient, they have these kind of vague complaints and I'm working, I'm taking them seriously, I'm seeing them back every one to three months, something like that. And, and sometimes if I get lucky, they'll come in and they'll, they'll, they won't even mention the complaint and I'll, I'll be like, how's that going? They're like, oh yeah, that, that got better. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know what I did other than take them seriously, try to rule out the bad things. So that's a really great, uh, great point, and I can say it's at least one patient I've seen it with. Uh, uh, so, Jeff, anything you'd like to add? No, I'm fatigued now. I'm good. You're fatigued? No, okay. No, I'll, I think this was a great discussion. appreciate your thoughts, yeah. This, Yeah, this was awesome. This will definitely be really uh, helpful. I know that everyone listening is struggling with this kind of problem in their practice. So thank you so much. And uh, check out Endocrine Secrets, and uh, that's, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And and we're back. Hi, hi guys. I really startled you. Uh, sorry, Stuart. Yeah, you kind of did. I'll, I'll I'll start with you since you're so excited, Stuart. Yep. Uh, you had a chance to listen to the conversation with Dr. McDermott. I did. I did. Anything you wanted to highlight for the listeners? Yeah, yeah I just wanted to thank him so much for explaining to me why I should be ordering reverse T3 on all of my outpatients. It was ex- very stimulating. I'm going to make sure that they all get a free T3 and a reverse T3. 
Um, and I hear that adrenal fatigue is real. So we're good. <laughs> I think, I, I hope our listeners get sarcasm because in the last, Paul did a similar thing last, <laughs> last week. I may have stolen and it from I was, him. <laughs> and I, no, I it's have. a solid bit. That's and I, right. And I was like, I hope people know he's kidding here. Cause, uh, yeah, but anything. So other than don't order reverse T3 right. and try to convince your patients. Have you ever ordered a reverse T3? No, I mean, honestly, I, I haven't because I don't really know what to do with Paul, it. Paul, have you? No. no I, I, I will be honest with you. I've ordered it three times. I'm Twice, completely unsurprised by that. <laughs> thanks. Twice was inpatient was to verify the sick thyroid. The third one, and this is an interesting patient, came in with a TSH of 40. Okay. Okay. And so I uh, started patient on about 100 mics of uh, Synthroid, and the patient came back and was having palpitations, sweating, was, ha- was uh, ha- having insomnia, loose stools. It sounds like hyperthyroidism, right? And so I decreased this patient's Synthroid dosage to 75 mics, and this patient was still having symptoms. So for this patient, I checked a reverse T3 and a total T3. Uh, and the idea behind this is that when you have a long-standing hypothyroidism, the type 1 and type 2 deiodinase activity changes. So you're going to make more of the active hormone, less of the inactive for negative feedback. So if you put them on a high-dosage synthroid, they may have symptoms. Okay, And so the levels of reverse T3 in this patient um, were actually suggestive of that. So it, it was actually uh, relatively low, reverse T3, and high total T3, suggestive that they were converting a lot of that uh, synthroid to the active metabolite. So for this patient, and, and really realistically for any patient like that, when they show up, you don't have to get a reverse T3 and a total, total T3. It's completely uh, overboard to get that. But to know that for someone with a long-standing history of hypothyroidism, if you start them on Synthroid, they may have symptoms because of this type 1, type 2 deiodinase activity. And the, uh, the goal in that case is to counsel them, take your Synthroid, consider a beta blocker if they're having symptoms. And this patient's uh, heart rate was in the 90s to 100 range, but it wasn't like in the 120s, 130s or anything like that. And you may have to back off on the, the Synthroid dosage and slowly increase it to a gold dosage to get their TSH back down. Going back to reverse T3, in, this, in the euthyroid 6 syndrome, all the levels are going to be low. The total T4, the free T4, the total T3, and the TSH, they're often low. The TSH might be low normal, but the reverse T3 level is high, and that is just what happens in acute illness. But if somebody... The reason to check a reverse T3 to confirm that's what it's, those patients have. Realistically, that's the only reason to that's check the a only reverse. reason. Right. And because if the reverse T3 is also low, then it's central hypothyroid and it's not euthyroid 6 syndrome. Right. So that, that is something you can, there's a, there's a nice table on up to date that sort of, uh, or a nice graph on up to date that kind of highlights that. But basically in euthyroid six syndrome, reverse T3 is high. Everything else is low in yeah. central hypothyroidism everything would be low, including reverse right. T3. And this is, this is hard to think through, so we'll have to put a, uh, a link to this in the, art, <laughs> right, in, right. The, in the show notes so that you can, you can see this visually. Yeah. Paul, for, so, so that was kind of the discussion <laughs> of sick, euthyroid sick syndrome. Are you uh, yeah. totally lost, or do you have any follow-up points? Anything you no. want to make more confusing for our listeners? <laughs> no, that was great. I think I went transiently blind for some reason. <laughs> I feel better now. Yeah, well, no, I... <laughs> I actually, I Dr. McDermott's sort of broader philosophic point, uh, he actually made a couple of really great points. Like it's, it's, it can sometimes be frustrating as a provider if a patient comes to you with sort of, you know, this constellation of constitutional symptoms, you know, sort of fatigue, and I just don't quite feel right. And I think his point that you do your due diligence, you sort of you order your, 
your thyroid tests, your CBC, your your vitamin D levels when they're when clinically they seem semi indicated. But if if they all come back stone cold normal, don't don't keep chasing them down. Start to look for sort of alternate things and and just talk to your patient and listen to your patient. And oftentimes, I think you guys discussed that that can be sort of the most therapeutic yeah. thing. I think Matt, you've made the point. Sometimes just by doing that and taking the concern seriously, the patient will come back and actually just feel better even without any actual intervention. So right. I thought, I know these, this is not as quite so fun as sort of graphing out um, changing reverse T3 levels, but I think it's, it's a really important point for our listeners and something I think about a lot. So I, I like that you guys talked about that. I think uh, one of the most profound things that he said, and this is something that I've said to uh, residents whenever I'm on the inpatient or is to start when they were normal and walk up in their lives, walk with them until the time that they show up with you. And if you can take that time to uh, obtain that kind of a history from a patient, you can oftentimes find the answer for whatever's causing their fatigue, whatever's causing their symptoms, whatever's causing the reason why they're coming in to see you or being admitted to the hospital for that matter. Yeah. And Stuart, I have to give you credit. I, we had this conversation. It was, I think we were talking about a different, it wasn't a, in relation to this podcast, but it was in relation to maybe something that happened in clinic. And you, mm-hmm. we were talking about how important the history is. And you were telling me that point there where you say, mm-hmm. when was the last time things were normal? And I was, uh, I had the pleasure of doing some nighttime admissions at Cashlack Memorial. Cash and Lack. so I was testing out that question on a patient uh, in the emergency department. Yeah. And I, I had, a, coming in with multi-system complaints, had right. a history of a lot of uh, supertentorial illnesses. And I said, when's the last time you felt good? And she said, it was it was when I moved. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, just last month. And then she told me how mm-hmm. her, all her family was there and she just moved here and yeah. was feeling, and, and so it, it sort of broke the case wide open for me, but by just asking that simple question, I yeah. didn't really have to ask a lot of follow up. She just kind of went on this thing. Well, it, it was, it's pretty telling whenever I'm on the inpatient wards and, and I've got this, this bug eyed intern or even resident or medical student sitting in front of me and they're just like, Dr. Brigham, I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, all right, walk with me to the patient and watch how I talk to the patient. Just, watch how I interact with the patient. I, I'm not the most, I mean, l- let's be honest. I've got some Asperger-ish autism <laughs> going on up, upstairs. So I'm, I'm not the best at connecting with patients when it comes to like connecting on a personal level. But having said that, I, I'm, I, I'm able to recognize patterns and, 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 and groups of behaviors that lead to certain issues. And so when I ask them that question, oftentimes they give me those patterns of behavior that lead to the diagnosis. That's just the way that I think. But having said that, you can come with come up with that answer, even if you don't think like the way I think. It's I mean, it's a huge it's not I don't want to say one of my favorite things. But, you know, it's we've all run to this patient who, you know, is, is admitted for probably an exacerbation of a chronic medical issue. But sometimes right. their left nostril bleeds and then their eye hurts sometimes. And one time their toe hurt. And every so often they get this funny feeling in, in their, right. their left chest. And you're like, what? God almighty, what is happening here? And if you just take a moment and be like, and, and how are things at home? And then yeah. they start crying and everything kind of unspools from there. Like it's just to show interest and actually have that conversation. I feel like we're way off um, the path on this, but right. I, I think it's an important conversation to have. And it, it, there, there's something to be said about getting down to the patient's eye level, sitting down, or even right. like getting below their eye level. And you'll notice that their tenor changes, their voice changes, their ability to interact with you changes. And oftentimes that inter- that kind of an interaction leads to more of a of a therapeutic relationship instead of just a diagnostic relationship. The last point that I wanted to make, because I think this is a good time to wrap up, hmm. Dr. Colburn, who was in the, helping me out with this interview afterwards, said to me that in his endocrinology clinic, they have a questionnaire that that is very targeted to the the big six that Dr. 
that Dr. McDermott talked about, the sleep, activity level, diet, stress level, mood disorders, and other medical illnesses. And Jeff, Jeff was saying that a lot of the times the patient will have filled it out and it'll say, uh, they sleep four hours a night, they drink four beers a night, they're, they never exercise, and he, he has that information in hand before. So I was going to put a link to that in the show notes, and uh, I think that would be helpful. We can certainly look at implementing it at Cashlac uh, in the Cash internal lab. medicine clinic. But I think that sort of thing can, can really help save you some time because when the patient's waiting for you, they can fill out some of these questions and kind of give you this, this big picture, kind of way back to the functional medicine episodes where they talked about that matrix that they fill out mm-hmm. with, where it sort of takes in all the factors in the person's life that feeds into their symptoms. Right. Yeah, and Dr. Colburn, by the way, was a fantastic guest host, which made me entirely uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like that he was cracking jokes. I don't like how capable you seem without me and Stuart. <laughs> right. Like this, uh, I don't. This well, is a, it, I feel like it's, a slippery slope we're on here. Is, I a, wasn't going to do this on air, but you guys are both fired. <laughs> it's uh, okay. All right, we're, we're going to go st- start the. Uh, was it Schmerbsteiders? <laughs> Schmerbsiders. The, the Schmerbsiders, yeah. Schmerbsiders. I, I promise not to take you to court over that. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Okay. Don't worry, Paul. He's not as loquacious as you (laughs) or as autistic as me. (laughs) This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. Mm -hmm. Schmerbsiders. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter, video newsletter, mm-hmm. summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Stuart, are you going to make some appearances in the uh, video newsletter? Mm, maybe I'll like paste my head into the video. <laughs> okay. Possibly featuring a uh, floating head of Dr. Stuart Brigham. Wonderful. And also, we are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night, Shelby. And I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Oh, hi, Paul, and good night.